warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Real Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism with Scott, with Stephen. Good morning. Morning, Matt. It's almost a celebration, but not. It's episode 50. It is and it isn't. That's, <laughs> that's the thing, which is, you know, kind of the professionalism that is, is brought to this show. Yeah, typically. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that we've forgotten. No. What it was, we, we were looking through... The, the running order and, and, and the content that we brought over the last two years or so. And we realised that episode 50 isn't actually 50 movies that we've reviewed because of episode 7, or 007 as we called it, where we inserted the Rainbow Valley special on the birth of James Bond. So tonight's movie is film 49. Yeah, this, you're going to have to talk me through this. It's film 49, but episode yeah. 50. <laughs> yeah. But we so, yeah, yes. what's so what we think of doing? Fifty film will be in the fifty-first episode. That's fine. Um, That's fine. Yeah, yeah, professional, um, as you say, as always. <laughs> <laughs> but then, obviously, but you know, there may be times in the future where there may be similar episodes to the James Bond one, where there might be some sort of a special edition or a documentary thing where we don't actually review a movie. So yeah, we thought thought it'd be nice just to stick to the number of movies reviewed rather than the episode numbers as it stands at the moment. So it makes more sense that way, doesn't it? I'm glad you think so because the more I'm thinking about it, the more it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then again, things making sense to me doesn't mean that that is yeah. right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so. so let's see how it goes anyway. But we'll we'll save it till the end of this particular episode when we we'll reveal what the fiftieth movie will be next time. This time round was your selection, and I couldn't tell you how pleased I was when you said this. There's certain times when you come up with a movie, or I come up with a movie, and there's an instant you know we've both got a history with this film. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's just like, I'm so glad you chose that, because I bet you watched it the same age as I was, the same amount of times, in the same sort of circumstances... Uh, what is yeah. it tonight? What is this movie tonight we're going to be reviewing, mate? We we are reviewing Time Bandits. Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits. Let's take a brief break here, and we'll be back straight after this. Remember my voice? I do trailers. All kinds of trailers. 23, take two. One day they'll put me in a film, a proper full-length job. Until then, I'm just stuck with this sort of stuff. Go and see this Don't miss that. The most terrifying thing you ever saw is coming to babysit for you tonight. All right, cut it down. Look, 
Just read what's on the script, will you? What? The script. Other way up. Ah. <clears throat> Ready? Yes, yes. You flock to see brief encounters for the special... Close! Huh? Close Encounters. Close Encounters, the film. Oh, I never saw it. Well, forget that film. We're on about our film. Time Bandits. The word. Time Bandits, the one you are supposed to be promoting. Remember? <coughs> you flock to see Close Encounters for the special effects. You went to Superman to see a man fly. You went to Star Wars for the droids. You went... Now what? What's page two, man? It's under page one. See? Oh, no. Star Wars. Time bandits can offer you much, much more. It's not the special effects or flying men or droids which makes time bandits a unique cinematic. Cinematic! You know, pertaining to the cinema. Cinematic experience, it's the makeup. Yes, folks, you've never seen anything like it. Men made up to look like monsters. Monsters made up to look like men. Look alike men made up to look different. Different men made up to look alike. No expense has been paired, spared on the pan stick. The pan stick. No expense has been spared flying in the world's greatest makeup man. Just a minute, just a minute. What about the plot? The what? The plot. What the film is about. Well, I haven't seen it, have I? Haven't seen it? You're sitting there telling millions of people to go and see a film you haven't even seen? Well, I can't see every film I do now, can I? Oh, wonderful. Terrific. Look, give me that. What are you doing? Taking over. You're out. O-U-T. Finished. Kaput. Finito. And what about the trailer? I'll do it. Time Bandits is an awfully good film. We have worked ever so hard on it. It's a tremendous adventure story. We like it, and we're pretty sure you will. <laughs> What's wrong with it? It's direct, punchy, honest. Honest. <laughs> honest. Smartest. What's that got to do with it? <laughs> Time Bandits, released on the 16th of July, 1981 in the UK, directed by Terry Gilliam. <coughs> now, the cast, if we were to say that this movie starred Sean Connery, Ralph Richardson, yes. David Warner, you'd think, wow, what is this, this Hollywood blockbuster? But then we're also going to throw in Catherine Hellman and Ian Holm, Michael Palin, John Cleese, Shelley Duvall, uh, and, and, and a half dozen of the finest little actors ever to grace our screens. Famous faces as well, amongst all of them. Give us the synopsis, yeah. mate, because, as I say, I think we've got a lot to talk about. Right. Well, this is uh, the ignored son of a middle-class couple is surprised one night when several short-statured employees of the Supreme <laughs> Being come crashing through a time hole cunningly disguised as his bedroom wardrobe. On the run from their boss through holes in the fabric of creation, the midget miscreants take the boy on a romp through history, meeting Napoleon, an ancient Greek hero, Robin Hood, passengers of the Titanic, trolls, giants, demons, knights, cowboys, spaceships, and God. Some of them, they rob blind. That's a lot to cram in a two-hour movie, isn't it? <laughs> it is. But, um, when you put it like that. 
it's there's and as you say there's lots of faces in this as well there's just you know it's it's a handmade films uh, thing that's that's very python-esque yep. so it's very much sort of scenes joined together that are, that are almost like python sketches in a, in a way yeah um so it, it's fast moving all the way through so there's plenty packed in as you say which um flashes through and and means that re-watching it to pick up the lines is um is essential really, exactly yes just keep, keep appreciating it well your history of the film you've seen this a fair few times so like me you, you thought you were pretty familiar with the, with the story i bet you found a few things in there this time that you'd either forgotten or hadn't noticed yeah there's the you know i hadn't properly appreciated you know just how much it was foreshadowing with um, Kevin's bedroom to what then would pan out in the entirety of the film behind. Yeah. Um, the, virtually every single historical or mythological um, piece of the story that later comes to pass is in some way um, echoed in, in his bedroom with mm. toys or, or a picture on the wall or, or something like that. Yeah, books um, and things. Yeah. So, and and that's, that's all there. You know, it is also... There's lots of lines in there, just throwaway little little lines that, over the years, I've probably just become a bit numbed to. Yeah. yeah. So watching, you know, sort of a bit more attention this time round. Um, you know, turning around and them them walking into an, a, an invisible barrier, and and uh, the Kenny Baker character turning around and saying, "Oh, that's what invisible looks like." <laughs> you know. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, and and also, I don't think I appreciated that that there is there is a a, a thin disguised little, little critique of God and religion. I think in there, with just some a certain little dig. pops yeah. pops pops in there. Just you know, yeah. It's the, the thing that struck me as a kid when I very first saw it was how it's, it's not a kids' film. It was it was how adult the humour was in this particularly the scenes between Palin and Shelley Duval. Yes. Um, with his little problem, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't have to wear the thing anymore. He doesn't have to wear the thing anymore. You know, as a kid, that would have gone straight over your head. You know, you might have chuckled a little bit, but you wouldn't know why you were laughing. And it was just, for me, it was, it was I've told this story a fair few times on, on this podcast and the Stinking Paws podcast, that back in the 80s, my stepfather was, was a video pirate. Back yeah. in you know, back in the days of Betamax and VHS, where they were competing for each other, and he used to go into work. He worked full time for British Telecom, but he'd go into work every day with two suitcases, one full of Betamax videos, and one full of VHS. You know, all fifth, sixth generation, dodgy, dodgy copies. But it would be movies that, because of the release schedule in America, was. Can you remember back then? It was like six months to a year before we'd get certain movies. Oh, it was at least a year. Sometimes yeah. it could be eighteen months or two years. Yeah. In some respects, it was. Yeah, it was. It was horrific compared to what we have now, where we we get impatient if we get something a day after they get it on <laughs> on Netflix in in uh, the states. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was like the most popular kid at school because you know I had these copies of stuff. You know, I, was, I knew that, I knew there had to be a reason. <laughs> I used to buy my friendship back then, and and it was things like just then. Yeah, still do as well, you know. Um, Rocky two, uh, yeah, Rocky two, Rocky three. I think was one of the most popular ones at the time. ET we had six months before it came out here, but with this one, it was released in the UK just slightly before the um the US release. 
the States got it in between sort of the summer blockbusters and the Christmas movies. They got it in that sort of autumn fall period. But I had a copy of it. It had been released in the UK and we had a copy on VHS. And I watched it lots of times. Lots and lots and lots of times. A, because I was a Monty Python fan. uh, And B, it's just a bloody great movie. You can see it on the two levels. You can see it from the Monty Python fans sort of side of things. But also it's an entertaining kids movie as well. It is very much. I mean, it's 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 done very much targeted at, at kids, although there are elements in there that can be enjoyed otherwise. Mm. But um, certainly, the, the it's directed, you know, to be a kids' film, even though it's it's dark. But as you said, it's it's aimed not to be patronising to kids. It's it's aimed to be there in on it. Yes. And and they're with it rather than it's something that's talking down to them or, or anything. Imagine in the different hands, this could be incredibly trite and, and just worthless. But because it's been done with the twinkle in the eye, obviously, that, that particularly Terry Gilliam has, where he's quite happy to embrace things that kids find amusing and entertaining, which, you know, is, is like parents blowing up and <laughs> those kind of things. It's, it's that just that element that he's happy to embrace and realise that kids like rather than the executives elsewhere that would have gone, no, we can't do that. You know, it's definitely not a Disney film, is it? Let's face it. Mm, That's interesting because the studio producers or or the distributors were like really concerned about the, I know we're jumping right to the end here, but they were concerned about that ending. They went, oh, that's a bit dark. You know, the the, the parents have blown up. So what they did, they did like a straw poll. They, They sort of like interviewed the kids after doing test screenings. And they asked them, what was your favourite bit? And and most of them said, when the parents blew up at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Not, you know, they didn't appreciate the Sean Connery bit, which the adults would have done, you know. Or... Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, and and that's what it has um, a resonance. And I think for us, it has a resonance, the fact that we enjoyed it as kids mm. um, at the age at which it was targeted at, at the people. Then it continued to be something you could return to because it had another layer in it and another layer after that that meant you could... You could still appreciate it for those bits that were suddenly more relevant to you at the age you were at. Yeah, and it's not—it's no, not hugely complicated in 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 that respect. But it does have those elements to it that allows you to continue to to enjoy it. And yeah, as a kid, I don't think I would, ever would have you know had any um, value for the the greatness of um, Sean Connery's <laughs> um, Greek accent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Does he try an accent? Or does he try one? No, he does. I think he does. He's, never, he? he's never tried an accent in anything he's done. <laughs> he's dropped in there, and it wasn't. Uh, we'll put this one in as a as a treat for the mums who are having to watch it with the kids. It wasn't any any of that. It was just because they went, "Oh, we want somebody of the stature of of, of Sean Connery," and and as it turns out, he got wind of it. He's a fan of the Pacefans, so he went. Yeah, I'll do it. Can I I read you what the actual script said, the stage direction at the time when they were writing it? The Greek warrior removes his helmet, revealing himself to be none other than Sean Connery or an actor of equal but cheaper stature. (laughs) 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 Never dreaming that Sean Connery would come on board. They just popped that in there. And as it turned out, I think it was the Python's manager was golfing partner to Sean Connery occasionally. Yeah, it would be golf, wouldn't it? It would yeah. be golf with Sean Connery. Dennis O'Brien, that's him. And and he just happened to mention it. And like you say, he was a huge Python fan and, and sort of had this 
this window of opportunity that he could film his scenes. And it's interesting as well that as much as we'd like to call this a Python movie, the, the Python team members are insistent that it's not because it wasn't a collaborative effort. No, it wasn't. They, yeah. It was it was Terry Gilliam and then he, he got two of his mates in. And then the others um, it actually refused to go in it because they said, no, no, it's not. It, people will get confused thinking yeah. it's a Python movie because they were quite pissed off apparently that Jabberwocky, a couple of years before, the other Gilliam movie, I think only had Palid and possibly Cleese in it. I'm not too sure again. But that was always billed as a Monty Python movie and they really didn't like that idea. No, no, that's a Terry Gilliam movie. They'd always insist on that. Uh, well, if it is, then that means you know, fish called wonder, and, that's yeah. a, and and stuff. And I mean, it's. I think that was very short sighted to people at the time, and and perhaps spoil the opportunity to to have um, other people in this because you could have had some great performances. You know, could have had Eric Idle in in there um, doing a part, and that would have been you know, it it, it yeah. lost an, uh, an opportunity there, but um, still, it's it's in the vein of. On Monty Python, so you know people yeah. who, who like Monty Python, I think, and particularly kids who liked it, like yourself, mm. um, that that will be an enormous benefit. And anybody who who haven't seen this as a kid, who um, is a Monty Python fan, it's worth going back to them and seeing what they missed as a kid, and and seeing you know that this was the opportunity that they lost by not seeing them, essentially what was Python esque humour for kids. Yeah, I mean, originally what what happened was. Gilliam at the time had this vision for Brazil, which was the following movie. And he presented it to Dennis O'Brien and, and the Handmade Films. And, and, and Dennis O'Brien, the manager, didn't actually get what he was on about. He didn't understand the concept of Brazil. So Gilliam thought, well, let's make this simple. Why don't I do a kid's movie? You know, And he had this idea. But he didn't think that a kid could lead a movie on his own. Yeah, you know, it wasn't strong enough, or you know, to, to to carry the interest. So he thought, I need people of a similar size to be part of a gang. And then he thought of different periods in history, and then the criminal element came into it. And he said, and it all just gelled together. And what he done, he came up with six or seven different little snapshots in time, like the Robin Hood, like Napoleon, like Agamemnon. And then he got Palin on board. And they wrote seven little mini scripts and then tried to link it all together. And it's a fascinating way of doing it because this film wasn't really going to, you know, this film never existed at the time. Yeah, it wasn't something, absolutely, in, you know, yeah. a long yeah. dreamt out project that he'd had years and years of, of dreaming of doing. Like Jabberwocky, I think he wanted to adapt, you know. You know, which is, is Gilliam's way usually. He's usually got projects that he's trying to get, you know, off the um, production back burner onto actually the screen he's you you know he's got things that has been 25 years in the making you know of him struggling to try and get it done on things yeah and this is this is the the exception to that rule of, of gilliam that you know is something that just had a, a genesis and just sprouted out of nowhere absolutely and he nearly didn't get palin on board as well because when he said to michael palin can you help me with this script he said oh i'd love to he said but i'm doing great railway journeys for the bbc and he's all went, Railway journeys, BBC. This is Hollywood. He said, "You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> what else would you want to do?" But then realizing what a, you know, a trained nerd that Palin actually was, he thought, "No, no, let's just let him do that, and I'll, I'll deal with it in a month's time." You know, when he yeah, comes yeah. back. Yeah, I, I did. I did hear that what you're saying there about the like the the seven different sort of vignettes mm. in this and the um, periods of the history and the having that 
linked to being, you know, the seven different protagonists as far as the, the shorter statured uh, miscreants. Yeah. They, 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 he had to pull away from that, you know, realising that Disney were going to get a bit um, upset about there being seven yeah. dwarfs. Well, there's six, um, isn't there? There's and, six yeah, because there's Kevin. one that died that the, um, they make reference to oh, course. Um, um, continually. Horseflesh. Horseflesh, that's it. Yeah. So there were um, seven. Of so, 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 there, so there was seven, and then the sort of they're they getting round that by going right. It's not seven dwarfs. It's six. But then we're adding a sort of D'Artagnan type um, <laughs> extra one who's not part of the gang, but he is. Um, so yeah, that again, you know, that's how the creative thinking goes on with Gilliam, and you know, it, it shows the, the the genesis of this coming out of nowhere and becoming. What it is just shows that the, the, the creative bent that he was on at the time was just a treasure trove, honestly, um, to be able to come up with this. And obviously, there was more bits he wanted to do with it. There was more scenes. There was some deleted scenes to do with space and other things, and apparently, yes. and all sorts. But yeah. um, that didn't come to fruition. And and maybe they'll maybe they'll be tapped into for for the alleged or rumored. TV series mm. that's going to be um, getting made um, of Time Bandits. Yeah. Um, have you heard about that? Yes, it's Takita. Oh, can't think of his name. The guy who directed Thor, isn't it? Yeah, I think. yeah. It's him. Taika Waititi. That's yeah. him. Um, yes. Yeah, who who is perhaps one of the few people I trust to actually do it, right? Well, he's got um, this very good sort of fantasy element to him, hasn't he? When you, when you look at some of the stuff he's done, because he didn't he do the vampire movie, didn't he? And he um, did. Yeah, yeah, he did that. Um, what we do in the shadows, That's and he it. also did um, Hunt for the Wilder People, which obviously Brilliant. is from a from a boy's perspective as well. So he yeah. knows how to. To, to do that, I think. I think that's what this needs. It needs somebody who can understand the, the child's perspective. Um, and not just in the way that in which, you know, Gilliam tried to have the camera from the level, uh, height-wise, of a, of a child. Yeah. But also, it's it's been referenced before about how there's sort of some loose um, interpretation of historical detail in, in the film. Um, <laughs> because, because, because that's it's been referenced just because that's, uh, you know, a child's understanding of it. It isn't down yeah. to the minutiae of the detail. It's more the, the the idea of it. So, and that's, you know, one of the perspectives that's been taken on. And I believe that if if Taika Waititi does actually um, get hold of it and turn it into a CV series, I believe that um, it, it could actually work. Mm. Um, but it doesn't, it won't diminish or take away in, in any way from from this that we've we've been enjoying for what about 30 years now <laughs> yeah when was the last time you watched it apart from obviously for today's review um apart from watching for the review i think i haven't watched it for probably about three years See, mine maybe probably, two yeah mine was probably longer mine was probably about six or seven but you know there was a period where i'd watch this regularly at least once a year i am very very familiar with it but like as i say this this particular viewing I, I just sat back and marvelled at things like the relationship between Shelley Duval, or not Shelley Duval, um, Catherine Helmond and Peter Vaughan. Yeah. Know, just that whole. This is the. Dynamic, yeah. Yeah, and also the, the whole situation as well that this is the mind of Terry Gilliam. This isn't Palin's writing here. This is Terry Gilliam's surreal, like the artwork you'd see in. in Monty Python the TV series and some of the movies you know the actual animations that he'd do he's brought this to life visually on celluloid now because you've got an ogre talking to a woman with a huge 
you know, cooking pot that's going to cook these little guys. But then it develops into the fact that the ship they're sailing on is actually balanced on the head of a giant underneath the sea. And it's like, that's something you'd have seen in one of his cartoons. Well, actually, at that moment, this is something I didn't notice on previous watches, but when when the giant comes out the sea Mm. and he stands on that house with the people in it, or the couple that are having an argument... They're not people. They're not people. They're they're (laughs) like that um, sort of the the big nose, big chin, Mm. big belly and big feet sort of cartoons from the Monty yeah. Python animations. I tell you what it looks they, like. They, they, are those, they are those people <laughs> brought not, to life. You know? They're not talking in any sort of discernible language. They're just sort of... Yeah, exactly. But if you see um, The Meaning of Life, there's a very brief snippet. You know the, the, the parts meaning to life is very episodic and in between each yeah. episode there's the fish swimming around isn't there and with with you know the the python's faces on them and they're talking hello howard's being eaten you know it's that sort of thing there's a particular linking scene that's set in battersea power station and it's terry jones has got a dinner suit on but he's got like eight foot long arms and he's going where is that fishy fish 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 and then graham chapman's dressed up in a basque and stockings with taps on his on his bra have you not can you remember this it's very <laughs> yeah, I do now. Yeah. yeah and in the background yeah. there's this elephant like creature in a suit wobbling about that looks exactly like those little creatures in the house yeah. you're gonna it's have to go back it. and have a little look yeah. but it's all like you say i've watched this film dozens of times and I, I may have noticed that previously but it really stood out for me this time round that those people weren't actually people and, and the lang- as you said the language that is the is the Sort of the gibberish that you'd have the on the Monty Python sketches yeah. with the um, the the old women, yeah. um, particularly that would uh, cartoon characters that would be just bickering and yeah, yeah and, and that yeah. yeah and it's 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 that kind of element that comes in that it's obviously part of the filmmaking at the time part of their their go to and their mind and their creative vision at the time as far as the, the Pythons coming from, and particularly Gilliam, obviously, with the animation side of it. But mm. it's one of those things where they brought those elements in because they know they they can work with those elements. They know that they're, they're elements that they can do something with. And I suppose in a similar way, um, now I think about it, that's why there's you know some of the repeat background actors and stuff who mm. were people that appeared in in. Life of Brian and, and and Holy Grail and stuff because there's quite a lot of people who are now from Life of Brian and this and now got their second second shot at the uh, Village Hall of Fame so that's a bit of a weird one lots of names that you wouldn't recognise yeah I'm just trying to think who does anybody go into the Hall of Fame today because of this we've got two yeah let's, let's do that now because being episode 50 we, we decided that <laughs> we needed to make a concerted effort to get the Hall of Fame pretty much up to speed didn't we because we we yeah. were mentioning this over 49 episodes and we've got no record of who's actually in there officially so <laughs> i sat down over a couple of weekends and did my best did you cast your eye over it and have a little look through i did and and i expanded it out because there were several that were glaring that errors slip, slip, slip between the cracks which um when you return to the document you'll see um you'll go oh cast yeah no, um, I knew there, there was, was a few. there was one or two in there that i I'd missed out on that. I hadn't realised it got from two to three or, or whatever. So who have so, we got that, you know, this particular movie gets them inducted into the Village Hall of Fame? Well, the the, the big one, 
Mm, is is Mr. Connery. That's the only one I can remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um and there's there's also um a guy called John Young. Okay. Now he's previously um been in uh Life of Brian. So mm. that's he's one of the ones that's managed to wow. um catapult via this to add to his his appearances because he was also in um, I'm trying to remember now. I think he was also in The Wicker Man. All right. Okay. Um, So he—that's how he manages to to get in there, as being the the third appearance. But yeah, we've got—I don't know—we've probably got about eleven or twelve people who are now on their second (laughs) (laughs) second appearance on the podcast. Half of those are jumped down to um, the life of Brian previously. Would be wouldn't Um, the Python team themselves? Well. John yeah. himself, you know, yeah. Palin and Gilliam, yeah, yeah. and um, and George Harrison. Are we including his appearance, appearance doing the the, the mu- musical? Yeah. Uh, but that's um, a kind of a side include rather than him being as a as a, an actor or, yeah. or anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, you know, they've got others in there, like you, some of which you won't recognise the names of. You mm. know, Edwin Finn and um, Del Baker. You won't, you know, won't recognise yeah. us. But yeah. but. Um, two of them, the names that you will recognise from previous appearances, mm. uh, Jim Broadbent and Ian Holm, who had second get, appearances. I was going to say, they don't get inducted, do they? So Jim Broadbent no. would have been for Little Voice. Yeah, and Ian Holm for previously appearing with Miranda Richardson. Uh, Dance with a Stranger. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so they're, you know, they're nudging at the door, as it were. But yes, the only two that get in are actually um, John Young and... Mr. Connery. Um, Connery was Hell Drivers and wasn't Night to Remember because we argued the fact if he ever appeared in Night to Remember. Um, what else did Sean Connery appear in? Can't think off the top of my head. You've done Doctor No. Oh, of course. Well, <laughs> possibly the biggest movie he ever appeared in. Um, <laughs> yeah, how can I forget that? Well, did you know that Peter Sellers plays more than one oh, pine? Well, um, anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, the, the, other, the other curious thing about it, you've mentioned his name previously before we talk about this bit, but one of the other things that's curious about this is that this is the first appearance for Peter Vaughan. Ooh. Now, Peter Vaughan, who has, has been, he's, he, he, along with uh, Madeline uh, Marion Stone, is, is probably the one of the most prolific British actors that, that there's ever been. Um, because he's, he's got in his uh, filmography like over 200 Things that he's done, yeah. Um, but this is the first time he's appeared in on the on the podcast. Are you saying um, that? Are you, and mm. um, and a man of his, well, not just his stature as far as him playing a, a, an ogre, but mm. his his acting stature is, you know, um, this is the first time he's he's appeared and worth mentioning him because well, obviously he's a, he was amazing, uh, amazing character actor, yeah. one of the best. We we reviewed Remains of the Day way way back on the Stinking Paws podcast. And he was one of the standout performances. I mean, the guy was in his 80s then, possibly. You know, he only passed away last year, I think he was. I mean, most people remember him as, as Grouty from Porridge. Yeah, and more modern times from um, he had a part in Game of Thrones. Oh, right. Okay, uh, yeah, it means nothing uh, to uh, me. But playing yeah, playing yeah. For a, a, in the first first one or two series or whatever yeah. it was but um yeah so he's yeah but an amazing character actor mm. of, of immense quality um but this is the first time we're actually having him in one of the films on on this That's podcast incredible see I, I think he's more 
familiar to TV audiences, but he definitely mm. appeared in a lot of movies. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's those sort of performances that, that just stand out for me because they're only on screen for two or three minutes. You know, the Ian Holm, whole yeah. Napoleon thing. It's always been that, you know, that thing we were always taught at school. Napoleon was only five foot, whatever it was, you know. But being Python-esque, it's twisted round, isn't it, that he's fascinated by puppets and, and little people, you know. Yeah. And, of course, when, when seven of them turn up on his doorstep, you know, it's just a, yeah. it's a gift that's from it. the gods, you know. Yeah, that's, that's the best thing. And he sacks his generals in order to actually make them his generals because he wants... He doesn't want his uh, his generals looming over him like he, what is it like he's like he's at the bottom of a well. The bottom of a uh, well. I think yeah. he says, yeah, he, yeah. So he appoints these people because they're shots. Then him, he'll make them his generals, um, which is uh, humorous in itself. Ian, I think Ian Homer's. I can't remember what it is. Ian Homer. I'm sure I've seen him play Napoleon in something else. What is a, a serious role? Well, I, I don't. I'm not well sure whether it was serious. Or oh, not. Right. I've seen him play Napoleon in something, as, as in a film or something other. And I know it's not Bill and Ted because that's a different actor entirely. That does yes, that. I'm trying to yeah. think. Trying to think who else, what, what else he's been in where he did play Napoleon. He but, might be. Yeah, um, yeah. It was something, but he, um, yeah, as you say, he just almost hams it up, but it works because yeah. of the context of what it is um, as a film. It's the stories uh, we're all familiar with, aren't we? Because as I say, the, the we know that. Napoleon. That's if, if if you were to you know someone to ask you to name a fact about Napoleon, you couldn't remember any of the battles that he won, or you know he was exiled to Elba, or that the first thing that comes to your head he was he was a little short guy. Robin yeah. Robin Hood, fictional character possibly, gave you know to the poor, stole from the rich, gave to the poor, which again is twisted around again in this, you know. And Gilliam was yeah, picked he's up very much playing him as the kind of royal. Figure like, um, do you know, like what's... the end of the Royal Command performance where the Queen meets the whole yeah. of the cast? And, and, and what do you do? You know, very, very good. <laughs> yes, uh, oh, how <laughs> oh, wonderful! Well yes, uh, how long have you been a robber? <laughs> yeah, jolly uh, four, good. Four, nine. Oh, that is a long time, isn't it? Yeah, um, <laughs> not listening to a word they're saying. Jolly good, jolly good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but then with, with Kevin, the child actor in this, he has an interest in history. This is the yeah. thing, you know. but it, Gilliam gives us our perception of what we think history is. Right, this I'm, I'm, I'm winging this at the moment, but Gilliam gives us... A, there's the classic bits of history. You remember the Titanic. You remember Robin Hood. You remember Napoleon. Kevin, who's actually... You know, you see him reading the history books and he's fascinated by it. He's questioning what's going on, you know, and he's sort of like, well, hang on a minute, Robin Hood, you, you're not supposed to be like this. And also the Agamemnon scenes... Yeah, he's fully aware of what's going. That's quite interesting. Let's let's just go on onto that Sean Connery bit at the moment because we get the idea they've been there for a little while. You know, they spend quite a long time with Sean Connery, yeah. and he builds up this rapport with him. And because basically Kevin's home life is shit. It's, yes, he's awful. We haven't we haven't spoken about this, have we? Because David Dacre, who I know you're a fan of. Yeah. Um, and Sheila Fern, who was the mother in George and Mildred. Do you remember she was one of the next door neighbours? Oh, one of the yeah. Four miles. Yeah, and, and David Dacre is obviously the, the second appearance we have in a, a film um, of, a, of a Boone actor. Um, is it because I never watched Boone? Well, we had we, we had Michael Elphick in oh. uh, Quadrophenia, and then he was he was the, the sort of 
the business partner or whatever of, of Boone, in, 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 if I remember yeah. correctly, from the 80s. But yes, his home life is... I mean, th- this film kicks in straight away, to be perfectly honest. It, mm. it, within the first two minutes, it's it's going. But, <laughs> but, in, but it, in those first two minutes, it does manage to show how he is ignored. His, his parents... Uh, sat in, you know, on the sofa on the three-piece suite with the plastic still covering <laughs> it. They're they're covered they're covered in the latest kitchen gadgets, yes. and you know the neighbours have have a, a microwave that can turn a an ice block into a beef bourguignon in in eight seconds, <laughs> and that's something to be remarked upon. And that's that's their focus. It isn't you know answering the questions of their child who's talking about history or even. Um, paying him any attention whatsoever so it, it is that that's his refuge and his escape yeah his history and it turns out that it, it is escape in another sense um because of the film but yes yeah, his home life yeah not not the uh the best for him is it unfortunately they don't beat him but they do neglect him they just neglected yeah it's all it's all tv dinners and quiz shows and he's just an inconvenience in the background and and when he gets to meet Sean Connery, there's somebody that's actually paying a bit of attention, treating him like you know as a father son relationship. Yeah, nurturing. And, yeah, yeah, and and he's actually heartbroken when he gets dragged away. Again, you you mentioning about sort of the technology and the coveting of of consumer goods. There's a line that David Warner as evil says about you know God, you know why did he create slugs and things like that, and he says. Digital watches, I'll have an understanding of um, car telephones and video cassette recorders. And Subscriber <laughs> trunk dialing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the silicon revolution, um, you know. And no, I'd just, have I just started with lasers on day one, that um, was it. 9 a.m. Yeah. That was it, and then, and then he goes, you know, how did God spend his time? Look at it, 47 species of parrots and nipples, yeah, nipples for men. Nipples for men, yeah. <laughs> That's sort of reflected back in David Warner's outlook on... on creation you know that the, the modern technological age should be embraced david warner by the way i think is the standout performance of the whole thing is is yeah he, he, i mean again it's a hammed up part but he plays it perfectly he's got we know he's got an immense subtlety to his repertoire he can he can really um add pathos to roles in other things that we've seen tv and film um so he's, he's a man of, of great talent and in this he just pantomime villains the fuck out of it. Yes, to be honest, because that's um, what he needed. He needs a pantomime villain yeah. at the end of this. Yeah, and he can do it. He can put his his full acting talent into into that, <laughs> and it's you know it works. Um, it just you know he he and he's surrounded by the the, the <laughs> sort of the minions um, that he has, and they you know complement his performance marvelously. But it's it's just amazing what he brings to the performance and just, you know, it, it does make it that the evil as a personification mm. is, you totally, totally feel like it is actually a being um, of some substance rather than it just being sort of something that, that is um, imagined. Yeah. Yeah. It's just an incredible setup. The way that, that hell is depicted, as you say, of all these little demons and minions running about fawning over this this man that's basically just seven foot tall in a cape and a funny hat um <laughs> but then when you see the power that he actually wields 
it, it, he is quite frightening as well. You know, it does actually, you can see the power. As it, you ab- absolutely, he's got the power to, you know, flip up his finger and send out a laser and, and <laughs> such like. Um, do, do you, is it just, I don't know, this could be just me finding finding links in things where there isn't because I'm, you know, overstudying it perhaps. Yeah. But is do you think there's any, there's any link between the, the fact in Kevin's home life, the the three-piece suite is covered in plastic yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff. And that the, the evil's, evil's minions are, are constantly, they're, they're wrapped in like these yes. sort of, um, the, the sort of like rain, bubble wrap raincoats, <laughs> bubble wrap and, and, and wind sheets and, and stuff. They're, they're, they've got the clear plastic coverings over with the hoods and stuff. There's, Even to the point where one of them's got a massive rhino horn and it's yeah. coming, you know, there's a hole cut into the, and, and I don't know whether that's just me. Um, there's no reason sort of for it, link, it. But there's no there's no reason given for it. So I'm just trying to find a reason for it because you know some of the stuff that's in within a, a you know hyphen and, and Gilliam films, the stuff that that there isn't a reason for it's just nonsense. But there are other things where it is actually um, you know that there's some reason that's just not given for it yeah. because he's got his own reasons and he keeps them to himself because he just finds it amusing for himself. <laughs> um, and I just wondered at that, and, and, and that was another bit that. This time around, watching, just think, why are they, why are they wearing those those plastic raincoats? When you think that, at one point towards the end of the movie, you you think this is a dream that Kevin's had because he wakes yeah. up and the house is on fire, and and you know like the the sort of theory of dreams that dreams are reflections of of what's gone on during your day or the past couple of days in there. There's little elements, yeah. that, you know. It makes sense, doesn't it? Because Jim Broadbent turns up as the game show host, who was yes. previously on the TV the night before. The plastic, as you say. All the elements of the stuff in his room, the toys, the books, the posters, are all parts of the story. Yeah. Yeah, it, the, the plastic could almost certainly be part of that. Well, this is it. I mean, it, it, as I say, it could be me overanalyzing it and attaching <laughs> meaning where there isn't, but... Um, it wouldn't surprise me if that, there was that, and it just you know hasn't been said it you know by Gilliam. But there's probably a you know a, a book to be written studying you know every one of Gilliam's films. But um, it, it's it's that kind of thing that just keeps you wondering and just thinks you just go, Whoa. yeah, why, what, eh? Yeah. And well, you just take it because that's that's the 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 world that they've got there. You know, this is the world he's created, and you accept it, and then the you know. It, it bowels on through so quickly you don't actually have a lot of time to pause too much on a lot of it to be perfectly honest with the speed this this film moves at as you say and there's a lot crammed in two hours um, yeah incredible I, I didn't realize that it was a two-hour movie because it, it just goes by in the blink of an eye because there's, you, you just get totally absorbed in this even though i've watched this well into double figures probably same as yourself yeah absolutely yeah equally as enjoyable this time round as it was First time I watched it, and, and as I say, I'm finding something. You've just found that, you know, as as, as a an interesting element that we probably didn't even know existed previously. Have you got any particular favourite scenes, or is it just one whole movie that becomes, you know, the, the whole all the elements come together to make one great movie? Is there? You know, it, what... it, it, yeah, I suppose it is all the elements coming together. I mean, I, I think depending on my mood when I'm watching it, there's, uh, sometimes I prefer, you know, I prefer the Napoleon scene, or yeah. I prefer the. I prefer the, the Robin Hood one. Mm. It it differs. I think you know the possibly the the Titanic one is one of the weaker ones. Um, yeah, you always but, forget um, that. The thing with Mister and Mrs Ogre, 
um, <laughs> as well. And Agamemnon, the, you know, that whole fighting the Manitou and then what it shows of the, the Greek, ancient Greek lifestyle in that sense. I think they're all bits that all rival each other. Mm. To be perfectly honest, um, I don't know if you've got any that that's do consistently stand out for you as a as a scene. For me, always it used to be the Peter Vaughan, Catherine Hellman sequence, the ogre sequence. That was always the bit I looked forward to, not necessarily the bit afterwards with the you know the boat on the giant's head. Yeah, but just that whole randomness of it—that it's a boat in the middle of the ocean that you know that's filled with the carcasses of, of dead people that they've eaten. It doesn't explain why there's a boat, why there's an ogre on the boat, why he's married to a human female, what you know, what the cannibalism side of it. It just doesn't make sense, and that's the bit I think I like that it was just like, oh, yeah, we could do with an ogre on the boat here, you know, just pop that in. Yeah, and then there's the, the references to you know the the pollution being lessened mm. means there's there's he's having to survive on fish rather than being able fish. to eat old, old boots and, yeah. and such like. Uh, you know, it, it's. Yeah, the fact that he's got a bad back, you know. Yeah, he yeah, can't, can't cough properly. Yeah, <laughs> that was always my my favourite scene. But I don't know. Looking back this time, I think I appreciate the fact that they've got somebody of Sean Connery's magnitude in there. Even though at this particular part of his career, you know, he was looking in a couple of years' time as coming back as Bond in uh, Never Say Never Again. I think he was just going off to film Outland, the sci-fi. Um, right. movie round about this sort of time it was it was sort of that funny period just before the untouchables before he's you know before he became that that senior figure yeah. within the, the film industry in that way yeah i understand yeah, there was uh, that funny period wasn't there yeah yeah this was ju- this was just a short time i think after it, it wasn't that long in this um since he'd done um another Prancing around in a leather skirt and, and sandals when he'd done um, Zardoz, I think that was that, <laughs> that was, was a little bit earlier. Yeah, that was yeah. A bit, uh, just a bit before this. Yeah, but yeah. I don't see, think he'd know. moved into that other phase of his career by this point. No, no you're then, right. But then audience reactions at the time would have been bloody hell. That's Sean Connery. You weren't expecting it again. It's random. Yeah, and it's and the, then he, and then having a dual appearance as well. Again, yes, we didn't mention this because no, I should mention it just in case Charlie's listening. <laughs> <laughs> He's played two different characters. Yeah, <laughs> those those two shots at the end uh, at the fire engine. Apparently, it was only available for like ten days or so in Morocco, where they filmed, you know, the, the main part. And and Connery came up with that idea himself. Yeah, he said, wouldn't that's it be? Right, yeah, yeah, wouldn't it be great? So apparently, he'd flown over because I think he was living in Spain at the time. He came over to see his accountant, and Gilliam said, "Look." Just come over here. We've got a studio near Wembley, I think it was. I've got a fire engine and a fireman's suit. I want to do two shots. And, and, and that's literally what it was. It was literally one afternoon. <laughs> he flew yeah. over to there put on, and, and they filmed two shots and inserted it in when they filmed the rest of that end scene. And they keep that continuity through as well with the two characters that he's playing, with the the way he winks at the lad. Yes. Uh, conspiratorially, um, you know, the way he did when he... You know, he, he points him as being when he first launches out the Minotaur's head over to the the public, and you know he, he sort of <laughs> winks at the lad next to him. And then when he appoints him to be his heir, yeah. he winks at him again, and again, and so it, it, it's carrying on that for for the the lad to think that's the same man, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But it's, absolutely, yeah, yeah it's, it's great to that they managed to 
have that opportunity to put him in again in that way because I think that's it's, it's just like a nice rounding off. And, and what better supreme being to have than Ralph Richardson as well? Well, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> he, he he brings it across as being the the sort of doddery. Um, <laughs> patrician type character, yeah. yeah that, that's you know. Did you know he was amending he, he the script on on the go? Apparently, he was looking through oh, the yeah. script, right? And, he, and apparently, he had this red pen, and he's crossing out bits, and he's he's tutting at Terry Gilliam, saying, "God wouldn't say that." <laughs> he's, just, <laughs> <laughs> and he's changing it. You know? And Gilliam said it was well, fantastic. He said the older statesman of like British, you know, cinema and theatre. He said he's amending one of my scripts, saying that God would not say that. <laughs> It's it's almost like the um, Alec Guinness thing when he turned around to George Lucas and said, "George, you may be able to write this shit, but you can't say it." Um, <laughs> but um, no, it, Richardson when he when he, he makes um, Kevin sign a receipt for yeah. for giving him back one of his um, his, his lost items, sort mm. of thing. And yeah, that whole bit at the end, we know where he's he's there's no excuse. Being dead is no excuse for loafing off work, Loaf so he brings work. him back to life. Yeah. And um, we're gonna have to check out thinking about that because. The voice of the supreme being, you know, the bit where it's "Give me the map." Him, yeah, that's that's not Richardson, yeah, yeah. But is it the same voice as God in Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Ooh, you know where you get the big cartoon yeah. God with the crown, and he's, you know, yeah, you, you need, it gives them the quest. We're going to need to check out who that actor is and find out who done the voice because it's very similar. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It could could well be for their you know, their habit of, of repeat performance. Yeah. Um which, you know, a lot of the great directors do. I mean, you know, you have your stable of actors that you go back to again and again. Tarantino yeah. does it, Scorsese does it, etc. So, you know, Hitchcock did it. It's it's you know, it's it's how it works. But yeah, I'd you know, it'd be interesting to find out now actually whether it was the same same voice um artiste. Yeah, it just sounded so familiar when I watched it this time round. I thought, is that the same one? Is it the same one from Holy Grail? What we're going to have to do, we, we've we've spoken about how much we admire handmade films. You know, yes. we've, we've covered two or three now. Life of Prime, we've definitely done. Can't think we've done any more. We did. We do any more? I think this is. I think this is the second. But there was a few others on the list. We went. We'll get to them. Yeah. <laughs> Well, in September, there's a book coming out about the history of handmade films. Oh, right. And it's called Very Naughty Boys. And I think we need to have a little look through that and and, and just see what we've missed. Because we know the famous ones. We know the ones that are associated with the Pythons and Terry Gilliam, but also there's The Long Good Friday and Mona Lisa. But I bet there's a few that we haven't even considered that we that we know to be handmade films or, or would even think of reviewing. So I've, I've got a good mind to get myself a copy of that book when it comes out. Yeah, because uh, I mean, there were some that we know of. I mean, um, with Nil and I, that was one with of theirs, wasn't it? Course, um, yeah. When they got a bit further down the line, this, you know, like, you know, I'm surprised, surprised you'll get there when eventually you do get somebody to come on and review uh, Lockstock. Because um, <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of theirs. <laughs> um, really amazing. Sort this, of the run they had. So I'm sure they'll be well, popping up it? another one. Yeah, the origins of it, which we spoke about. While we were reviewing Life of Brian, how it all came about, the funding of it, just just to create one movie, and then there's this incredible run for five, six, seven years possibly, and and there was no turkeys amongst those movies that were being churned out because every single one of them we would probably say, yeah, I'd happily review that with you, you know, even nuns on the run, even nuns on the run. In <laughs> fact, probably 
<laughs> Ben from the Rated H podcast would happily be a guest on that one. He's got a thing about nuns in movies for some reason. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, but yeah, there's, so, there's, there's some great, great sort of handmade films. So let's see. Let's see what we come up with very soon. In your rating system, which you sort of base on how, how people should view the movie in what sort of media or what sort of format. I've got a funny feeling you should probably encourage people to watch this on the big screen if they can. Yeah, absolutely right. If people can see it on the big screen, and, and if I could see it on the big screen, I would. Yeah. Uh, be booking tickets tomorrow if it was, <laughs> if it was the it's case. It's very um, So absolutely, go out your way because it's it's one of those that is... is it's large on the screen in, in the way that there's um, there's so much happening and seeing it in mm. that size really would benefit you. But it's certainly one that if you can't do that, for people should make a point of looking out for and trying to actually um, watch and make a special effort to do so. And particularly for me, you know, this this is a film that has particular resonance. Um, I think I've watched it repeatedly Every, at least once every summer holidays all the way through from <laughs> from me being in the mid-80s through to, to being in my teens, yeah. definitely, and, and adulthood. So I would recommend, yeah, go out your way to try and, and watch this um, because it's it's just a, a romp that will just keep you entertained all the way through. You get the subtle, low-key, Python-esque, tittering humour, you know, a sniggering behind your hand type thing that, that works well on a TV screen. But the whole spectacle, the scale of it, is quite incredible. You know, it's it's a cinemascope epic movie that crams seven movies into one two-hour piece. Yeah. And, yeah, and it deserves to be seen on the big screen. I mean, you can watch it in any format you can, but do you know what? If, if there was some anniversary screening... Yeah, we'd know, be there. We'd be there for it. I think we'd have to, because... It's, it's, I think it's certainly warrants any movie being you know warrants being seen on a big screen. That's what they were designed to be viewed on. But this would be there. We'd be there in character. Let's face it. We'd be we? there dressed up. Yeah, <laughs> we've, we've, we've shoes sewn onto the knees of our our trousers. Um, well, um, I'll, I'll just wear a dressing gown. I don't know which. But yeah, absolutely. It, it, films should be seen on a, on a big screen most in most part. But some of them can be equally enjoyed on a on a television screen. Now this we've got the TV size we have. But that is is one of the ones where it's it would feel like an, an event. Yeah, I think so because yeah. there's a lot going on. It's it's as I say, it's it's seven mini movies crammed into one big movie. And the the sum of the parts is great. You know, it's it's fantastic. Um, five stars in my you know rating system. Let's take a break because, as we say, this is episode fifty. Time Bandits yeah. is movie number forty nine. We'll be back in a minute with what we're going to be reviewing as our fiftieth movie. Yay! <laughs> Okay, Stephen, for episode 51, movie 50, we sort of thought of different criteria or ways of trying to celebrate the fact that it was the 50th movie, and we were looking at lists, possibly the Sight and Sounds, greatest British movies yeah. list, see what was number 50 on the list. And, and then we thought, well, hang on a minute. 
let's find a movie that's 50 years old this year. Let's celebrate the anniversary. Because 1969 was, was a remarkable year for newsworthy events. You know, we had the Apollo 11 moon landing. There was Woodstock. I think, yep. it, was, I think it was the Manson killings. There was Chapa Kid Quiddick. There was the birth of the host of one of the podcasts that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You know, remarkable year. Remarkable year. Yes, it produced some remarkable um, output. <laughs> yes. But then when we went to look at British movies made in 1969, it wasn't that remarkable. No, no. We uh, Hollywood, yes, but British yeah. films, it seems to just be a bit of a more barren year, really, yeah. compared to the years around it. 69 is famous in Hollywood, I think, as the turning point that the, the studio system was definitely dying. And it was the year of things like Easy Rider and Midnight Cowboy. It was that era. The independent directors and producers were, were coming forward. And, and the Hollywood blockbusters were, were just dying, you know. And it was it was a, a remarkable sort of like fresh time to be in Hollywood. In, in the UK, we looked down the list of movies made in 1969. And we pretty much could only come up with one. There was a couple. Yeah. But we thought, well, we need something a bit worthy. So, yeah. and this has got an Oscar winner, somebody who won an Oscar. I think this was the whole um, reason. Yeah, so, this, yeah. this was the reason I think we decided on it. We thought well, it's something with a bit of gravitas to it. So, so what are we doing? What are we reviewing for our fiftieth movie? We are reviewing the Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Yeah, Not starring um, Maggie Smith and Gordon Jackson of all people. There we go. Gordon Jackson so. must be pushing his way into the Hall of Fame at some point very soon as well. But yeah, it's not. A rip-roaring Hollywood blockbuster. Have you seen it? I have, yes. Yeah. I've seen it, yeah. I think, twice. I think. Yeah, long time ago for me. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I need to see it. It's, it's From what I remember, I really enjoyed it. It's a bit controversial in places, but the acting is damn fine. Oscar-winning performances, as you say. Let's do it. It's, it's, it's movie number 50. Yep. Sounds absolutely spot-on for me. Okay. Stephen, it has been an absolute joy talking about the Time Bandits today. Um, as I just said to you off air, I could quite easily sit and watch that again now. Yeah, me too. Because yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just stirred up even more memories just talking to you about it uh, and, and things that I've missed. I'm going to look at that, you know, the, the people coated in plastic again to work out if there's any other links. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To what's going on, you know. Fine. Absolutely fantastic, mate. I will see you next time for... Episode 51 and movie number 50. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much indeed. I look forward to it. Take care. Dan Joe. Bye-bye. Positive shower. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you.
bring the British end up, sir. Ha, ha, ha.